What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition. Uh, very excited about this one, you guys, because I have Steve Hyden in his house, not in my house. Where are you, where are you from? Where are you calling in from? Uh, I am uh, just right outside of Minneapolis. Oh, okay. Oh, nice yeah, rock and roll town. Yeah, where are you? Uh, I'm in Atlanta, another oh, great rock and roll town. There you go. Uh, and for those of you, for the uninitiated, the reason I keep talking about rock and roll already is because Steve is the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts here on our own network called uh, Rivals. And uh, it's about, and I've talked about it a lot on the show, so people kind of know it, but it's about um, famous kind of music beefs in the industry uh, from kind of uh, spawned from a book that you wrote called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and thank you for having me on your show, by the way. And, of course, uh, man. And I'm thrilled that uh, you like Rivals. It's a lot of fun to do. You know, it's funny because I, when this show first came up, it wasn't actually my idea to do the show. I, I Heart Radio approached me. They, I think they already had the idea that they wanted to do a show about music rivalries. And then they knew I wrote this book. So they thought I'd be a good host for it. Oh, interesting. And, and I thought, like, are we going to have enough rivalries like to do a show? And right. it's amazing, like, as we get into this, that there's like still tons of good beefs that we haven't even gotten to yet and we've almost done like 50 episodes so i mean there's like a lot of conflict in music history yeah. <laughs> fortunately it's, it's pretty great and it's funny because i kind of wondered the same thing i was like you know what kind of legs does this have and then you know i'm listening basically on a weekly basis um i am a little bit behind right now i'm typing it in now so i can look and see uh what the most recent episodes are but uh 
I keep thinking of new rivalries myself, and I'm like, no, there's there's plenty left to explore from these guys. Right. And, you know, the thing, too, that really opens it up is, you know, just realizing that pretty much like every great band had some sort of like rivalry within the band. Like, yeah, you know, there'd be like two songwriters who feuded or they're, you know, the, the singer and the guitar player had a feud, you know, so like those like like intra band rivalries, I think are my favorite, like where it's like two people in the same band who can't stand yeah. each other, but they have to make yeah. it work, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm looking now, the most recent one I just listened to was, um, and I kind of jumped around at this point, was Sting versus the Police. <laughs> right. Just because I'm such a police fan and it's such an interesting thing where these um, two guys, I mean, three guys that weren't best friends and two guys that seemed like they really just didn't like each other. Yeah, and like it, just the uh, combination of people doesn't really make any sense on on paper. You know, you have uh, this drummer who was in a prog rock band. You have the bass player who was already playing jazz music. You know, before right. the, like the Police was really Sting's only rock band that he ever played in. And yeah. then Andy Summers, who was like almost forty years old, like when the Police so crazy kicked off, and yet um, they come together, and it's like you know like what's a catchier band than the police like what's an easier band to like than the police it just yeah. came together and created this very accessible popular sound and you know that's the magic of music like why do things like that work you know who knows yeah totally it um i, I mean i'm kind of i have a little bit of bitter uh, taste in my mouth over the police because i went and saw that reunion tour oh man and just <laughs> you know i mean the music was fine but it just felt so phoned in, at least at the show where I was at. They they came in from clearly separate entrances. You got the idea that they had separate rooms, got on separate in separate limos, and literally only saw each other on stage. And there, you could just feel the lack of love on stage, <laughs> and that sucked. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, you say you're from Atlanta. I yeah. I, I uh, co-wrote a book with my friend Steve Gorman about one of the great Atlanta bands, in my opinion, the black crows. Yeah. I wanted to and, talk about that too. And you know, I still love the black crows, uh -huh. even though I like worked on this book and it's just about how awful things were in the band. And there's like yeah. lots of things that Steve told me that aren't in the book. Like there's oh, things wow. that he couldn't put in there because they were so bad. And yet, wow. and yet I still like the band. So I, I feel like I have a pretty high tolerance for, musicians not liking each other uh -huh. and, and then not ruining the band for me because i i definitely think that there's like some people who like shouldn't read biographies because yeah. I, I think for some people there, there's this idea that like a band is a family or like a gang and when you find out yeah. that in reality you know and especially for the bands that are around for a long time they always end up disliking each other. And I think that's kind of natural. It's like, you know, think it's of kind of like a family. It is like a family or, <laughs> you know, think of like, how common is it to make a friend when you're like 16, 17, 18 years old and still be friends yeah. with them when you're 50, you know, like that's a pretty unique thing. I mean, I, for, I have some childhood friends still, but like, I don't see them every day. I'm not in a band with them. If I, if I did right. see them every day, maybe we wouldn't be friends <laughs> anymore. Uh, so just, uh, I mean, I think the thing with the show, it's great for music fans, but I also think it's just an interesting 
show about human relationships, you know, and like totally, and you just see how certain patterns recur, no matter what kind of band it is, you know, it could be a metal band, it could be a country band or a funk band, whatever. People still have the same hangups and, you know, yeah. Wanting power or feeling like you're underappreciated, you know, underpaid, underpaid, you know, insecurity, you know, feeling like you're not getting the respect from this person that is supposed to love you and how it just eats at you for years. And then it just blows up, you know, like a decade or two later. Yeah, it's really Uh, sad. I mean, because bands, you know, when bands get together and especially when you're a music lover like we are and like so many people are, it's usually and you know the case of like you know there are always the outliers like the pixies who all just answered an ad um and i assume there will be a kim deal versus black francis or the pixies episode at some point but totally that's an outlier you know usually people get together because they are friends because they have similar sensibilities and they love each other and to see those relationships fracture is really kind of depressing um i think that i think if I think the people, the U2s and the REMs did it right and that they were like, listen, we're a band and we're all going to divide this thing up equally. And there's never going to be a question about about payment and who makes more and who writes more stuff. And from that point, all you have to do is have a, uh, a, a chief songwriter who can live with that, because that's a lot of times where it goes wrong is right. a, a few years in, someone's like, man, I'm doing all the work. And these guys, like the drummers, not even writing shit. Right. And so, so why am I splitting my thing up? You know, twenty five percent a piece. Yeah, I, that's definitely a huge thing. I also think that the bands that stick around with all the original members are the bands like where each person knows what their role is, and they're, right, and they're okay with that. Like you mentioned, you two, mm-hmm. and like Larry Mullen Jr. isn't causing a stink because he wants to be the singer you know he's not he's not like pushing to like have yeah yeah, he's not he's not pushing like to have his songs put to the forefront like he understands that bono is the singer the edge is like the main music guy and he's the drummer or you know i i just wrote a book about radiohead and like radiohead's another band that like all the same members the same you know throughout their entire history and that's another thing where it's like yeah tom york he's the songwriter uh johnny greenwood is the guy who like helps realize his idea sonically the yeah. guys in the rhythm section are the rhythm section ed o'brien is like the texturalist guy and they yeah. all know their roles and they're comfortable with it and in the bands where that's not true that's where you have problems like where the bass player wants to sing yeah. and he, or he wants to be the guy on the album cover not the singer uh all those sort of petty jealousies that come to the fore yeah for sure and uh, radiohead's one of my favorite bands and i do have that book um, and it's uh, sitting on my n- nightstand right now, and it is your fault I haven't read it. It's called um, This Isn't Happening, and it's mainly about the making of Kid A, one of the just landmark albums, although it seems like Radiohead puts out nothing but landmark <laughs> albums. Right. Uh, Moon Shape Pool is one of my favorites, um, right. and that's their most recent. But uh, I got into the Bob Spitz Beatles book on your recommendation oh, from yeah. the show, and that, you know, the, the breadth of that book. Uh, it has been a bit of a slog, a fun slog, but it's long as hell. And so that's why Radiohead is still sitting on my nightstand, but that's next up for me. Well, it's crazy because um, I just picked up, I don't know if you're familiar with this, like uh, I think his name is Mark Lewisan. He's like a big Beatles historian and he's working Mm -hmm. on like just a mammoth 
Beatles book that's going to be three volumes. Oh, wow. And he just, he put out the first volume, I think it was like six years ago, and that's like 900 pages. And it's just about Holy the cow. Beatles up until like 1963. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> it's almost like um, like Mark Caro, he does those Lyndon Johnson biographies yeah. you know he's got it's the same thing there so i i just bought that i haven't started reading that yet but yeah if you think the spitz book is long you know this this book <laughs> is longer than that and it's just you know their you know childhood and hamburg years and stuff it's not even their sort of prime yet but i'm excited to get into that i mean the beatles story you know i i've seen so many documentaries about them i've read yeah so many books i never get sick of that story and it has all the elements that we were just talking about uh, where you have these friends from childhood, yeah. they come up, they become famous. And then, you know, all these different power dynamics come into play where people are fighting for power in the band and fighting for recognition. You have John versus Paul, you know, their sort of competition going on. And then you have George Harrison, this great songwriter who I know. is treated like the little brother in the band, not Just take it seriously. waiting in the wings. It's yeah. crazy. They never, and we we did an episode on that. They never, yeah. you know, Lennon McCartney never reached out to George Harrison to say, hey, why don't, why don't we write songs together? It was, it was like, no, you're like the little brother. You know, you're not going right. to be as good as, uh, <laughs> good as us ever. And you know, you can just see, like, when Harrison finally got out of the band, he puts out All Things Must Pass, this, I like, know. enormous record triple album, and he, he just felt like, no one's going to yeah. tell me no. I'm going to put everything on this record. It was a bit of a middle <laughs> finger to the other guys. It was like, <laughs> right. all right, I'm going to outdo both of you. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, I've listened to almost every episode up until, like, a month ago when uh, I got distracted, but the the Tweety J. Farrar episode is one of my favorites. Uh, the band is one of my favorite all-time groups. So the Robbie Robertson, uh, Leave on Helm story was just uh, that, that. That's a tough one personally because of the finances of of Levon later on in his life, and really kind of all the guys. You know, were you know the band is one of the sadder stories in music. I think, yeah, of them. You know, without Robbie playing these kind of like you know washed up dive bars almost. Which is just crazy to think about. Um, I'm glad he had a Levon had a nice career resurgence at the end with those couple of great albums. But um, I, I recently watched the documentary. Uh, uh, what was it called? Brothers. Uh, Once we're brothers. Yeah, once we're brothers. Which you know, it's the Robbie Robertson show, so I kind of knew what to expect. I loved all the archival footage, um, but you know, I was I, I think I had the understanding that they had a real deathbed reconciliation. And not he went in there to an unconscious Levon Helm and kind of held his hand. Right. So that really kind of burst my bubble a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing with that conflict between Levon and Robbie, I think for the longest time, like I've sided with Levon. I mean, I love Levon so much. I love him in the band. You have to. Great drummer, <laughs> incredible singer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Robbie Robertson's just like a less sympathetic character in a lot of ways yeah. although i think lately i've come to have more equal empathy just because i feel like you know from from robertson's perspective you know he was in a band with these like three genius singers and musicians you know mm -hmm. helm danko and richard manuel but they were all also like drug addicts and, yeah. and irresponsible i'm sure like 
especially after they became popular, you know, it was hard to wrangle those guys, get them into the studio. Robertson was the responsible one. You know, I think he was like writing the songs. He was putting things together. I can see from his perspective how that would have just been maddening to deal with. And maybe yeah. at some point you're just like, I got to get out of here. I could, I'll go to Hollywood and make movies with Martin Scorsese and that'll be great. Um, it's, it's alluring for sure. But yeah, that movie, Once We're Brothers, it really does leave like a sour taste in your mouth because, you know, yeah, Robbie Robertson, you have a right to get your viewpoint out there. But you had a long time to do that and you didn't do it until the other guys were dead. Right. And they can't respond. I know. And it just seemed a little cheap. Um, and it actually, I think, made yeah. it look worse to do that. I, I I think a lot of people, a lot of band fans did not really respond positively to that movie. I, it seemed like a pretty kind of transparent, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Apollo, you know, it's a way to like prop Robbie up basically and make the other guys yeah. not look as good. And, um, I think if he would have been a little more honest and uh, empathetic right. to Levon, he, he would have came out looking better and also yeah. made his case. But you know, I don't know. That's such yeah. a complicated thing. It's, I know. And he always he always strikes me as a guy that kind of likes to hear himself talk. Yeah, um, as evidence from you know the last waltz in this documentary and his sort of you know shoe polished black hair at his age <laughs> and. Uh, the Hollywood thing. I don't know, man. It's it's, but he's one of my favorite guitar players of all time. Well, too. and that's the thing. Like, I I had the chance. Look, I've I've taken shots at Robbie Robertson, like in print, like yeah, many times. <laughs> but I I interviewed him. Um, oh wow, like two or three years ago, and um, he was a great interview. Uh-huh. And you know, whatever you want to say about him, he played on the 1966 Dylan tour, blazing lead guitar like some of the yeah. greatest lead guitar ever he was there with the basement tapes i mean this yeah. guy's been a part of like some of the greatest music ever made yeah so yeah he's arrogant and uh kind of a glory hog i think but his resume is pretty great you know so it's like no, what, are gonna, what are you gonna what are you gonna do what are you gonna what's do what's it like uh what's it like when you're interviewing i mean you're a music journalist first and foremost and that's where you're uh career has has led you to podcasting secondary in a secondary way but when you're interviewing some of these people that are your idols uh or just just these huge superstars what uh what's that like how do you how do you keep it chill <laughs> well i mean you know interviewing like a famous person to me like isn't that big of a deal you know like it it, it is what it is it is part cuz like they're just people a lot of times too it's like they're not famous for anything extraordinary necessarily. It's just like, right. They're just famous. But if it is someone like Robbie Robertson or like I interviewed Robert Plant once or like, a Paul, or like a Paul Simon, mm. that, that is like, I'll be, I'll have like nerves in the pit of my stomach starting the yeah. day before. Um, I mean, these are the rare, rare humans in history. Yeah, exactly. Where like, yeah, they're human beings, but they're, built up so much yeah. certainly in my mind <laughs> beyond that especially someone like robert plant like yeah. where you know i started listening to led zeppelin when i was like 11 or 12 years old and yeah reading hammer of the gods you know by stephen davis oh and, yeah and uh-huh. and you know and i i've said this before but you know like i'm not a comic book guy but 
Yeah, rocks, same here. Like rock stars of the 60s and 70s, like they're my Marvel heroes. Yeah, like, me too. Like that's my, like Robert Plant is my Batman, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, Robbie Robertson is like my, you know, whoever, uh, 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 Green Lantern or whatever. I can't even think of comic book characters. I think Robert Plant would be more of a Thor if, you know, <laughs> we're going to get into the Norse mythology. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, just people that are so built up in my mind that uh, it, it's just, it's just incredible to talk to them. And then you talk to them and like Robert Plant was really nice and like yeah. thoughtful and he's just a music fan right. at, at heart. So when I was interviewing him, that was something that I felt like I could, I could connect with him. You know, like we were talking about um, Sandy Denny singing on the battle of Evermore on Led Zeppelin uh-huh. four. So then we started talking about like Fairport convention and like English folk of like the late sixties and early seventies. Cause I like that kind of stuff. And, and obviously he's a huge fan of that. So, you know, we could connect just as music fans. And Is that what you're looking for? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, like when you interview someone like that, who's been interviewed so many times, yeah, you know, you, you don't want to ask just the standard questions that they've been asked a million times because, you know, well, for one thing, it, everyone's heard that before. So it's not interesting, but also like the the person you're talking to, they're not going to give you good answers. They're, they're just going to feel like, Oh, I can go on autopilot. Cause this is just like another dumb journalist, you know, out of millions right. that I've talked to in my life. But I think if you can show that, you know, you care about this stuff as much as they do, I think it's a signal to them that, Oh, okay. I can loosen up because this person's on the right level and we can actually have like a real conversation. And I think that's when, doors get opened and you actually end up maybe discovering something new, uh, you know, that hasn't been rehashed, you know, a million yeah. times. I love the, uh, the story when you, I felt so bad for you, man, when you were, uh, recounting your Liam Gallagher interview and, <laughs> and, you know, you, you don't want to be the millionth guy to ask him about an Oasis reunion, but it's almost like you kind of have to, or you're being negligent and it sounds like you didn't press it, but it was all just, BDI mate, BDI right. mate. <laughs> well, yeah, this was all wanted to talk about. Yeah, this was right after Oasis broke up, and he, yeah, he started this new band called BDI, and um, it was an interesting time in his career because I, I think he's changed quite a bit since then. He used to be uh-huh. much more sort of, um, like churlish with the media, mm-hmm. and um, now like you see interviews with him and he's like super charming and, and, and funny and, and much more loquacious. And, and I don't, I don't know if that was just something, you know, he just got older and got in a better mood or maybe there might've been like substance abuse issues too. I wonder if, if maybe he was just more intoxicated when I talked to him because he, because like you see him now and like, you know, his eyes look, clearer and he looks more yeah. alert so I, I i do think that's maybe part of it um but yeah when i talked to him you know and i said this i think i said on the on the show that i asked 24 questions in 15 minutes <laughs> because it was all just like one sentence answers oh that but sucks i'm such an oasis fan that i actually was i was digging that like it was kind yeah. of uncomfortable but like it's kind of a classic Gallagher move. Yeah, I, I was kind of, I was kind of loving it just because it's like I love Liam Gallagher. I love his attitude, and I, I mean, so to be on the other end of it, it was kind of a dream come true uh, to be abused by Liam Gallagher a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I'm also a big fan of the, um, the, the Van Halen episodes and, um, my, uh, I am now kind of email friends with Aaron Hagar, uh, Sammy's son, oh. uh, because he's a fan of movie crush and stuff you should know and got in touch with us a while back. And, uh, now I can just like email him about anything. Anytime I have some little question or whatever, I can e- email him and he'll be like, yeah, man, whatever. I'll tell you anything. And like, I'll go ask my dad right now. Oh, and, cool. like, Sa- Sammy says, hi, he thinks it's so cool. And it's just like, Sammy, you know, I'm obviously a big David Lee Roth, Van Halen guy, because I was, that was the original lineup when I was a kid, but I, I loved both. I loved Van Hagar. And uh, I think Sammy Hagar is one of the more kind of cool, endearing guys in rock history. He just, he just seems like a good guy. And Aaron's like, man, he's, he's great. He's a great dad and always was. Yeah. I, I interviewed Sammy um, like maybe 10 years ago when he put out his memoir red, which uh-huh. I think I said this in the episode. I, I think that's like one of the underrated rock memoirs. I don't hear that like mentioned when people talk about great rock books, but it's like a pretty entertaining. I haven't book. read that one yet. Yeah. He's like, I mean, he, his personality comes across in the book uh, pretty clearly. I mean, there's like a lot of trash talking about Eddie Van Halen. So like there's that aspect of the book, just talking about basically how messed up Eddie Van Halen was uh, yeah. <laughs> during that period. But like even the stuff like before he joins the band, it is pretty fun. And uh, I mean, he has the whole aliens thing, like how he talks about <laughs> How he had an alien encounter when he was, yeah. I think, 20 years old or so. Uh, so that's pretty wild. But yeah, when I interviewed him, you know, we talked for a long time. It was like over an hour. And it was one of those things like where I think we went over our time that we were allotted by the publicist. But he was just like, you know, just whatever you have, just keep asking me questions. You know, I'll go as long as you want. And I think that's just his attitude. He seems like a pretty, you know, like man of the people type yeah. guy. You know, so I, I appreciate that about him. Did you grow up in Minneapolis? No, I'm from Wisconsin originally. Okay. I'm, I, I grew up in a town called Appleton, which is uh, oh, not, sure. not far from Green Bay. It's about a half hour uh, south of Green Bay. So gotcha. still a big Packers fan, even though I'm yeah, in yeah. Minnesota now. But uh, yeah, we, I, I've lived here for five years. Oh, okay. Um, and I love it. I love it here, even though we're now entering our winter right. hell here <laughs> uh although it still isn't too bad here i have to say uh but yeah january and february are always tough yeah, it's months for me but after that it's great i and i like seasons too i'm pro seasons yeah yeah i gotta I have a good friend there and stuff you should know always does really well there on tours it's a great um i think it's a great town for artistic very literate sort of cultured people um, right. and, and very, you know, it's, it's a great rock and roll town. Everyone from the replacements to Husker Du and soul asylum and obviously Prince, uh, it's just got a great rock and roll tradition. Uh, this indie band tapes and tapes is one of my favorite indie bands of all time. And they're, yeah. for, I've gotten to know those guys actually by touring and invite them in, uh, to the show and stuff. And oh, cool. Uh, just a cool, cool town. Uh, hold steady, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Although they came together in Brooklyn, but, oh, okay. But all, yeah, but all their but uh, Craig Finn lived here for a long time, and all of his songs are set here. So right. 
they're really like the Bruce Springsteen of Minneapolis, like how you listen to Springsteen songs, <laughs> yeah, and he's name-checking specific <laughs> towns and bridges and all that stuff. And Hold Steady songs, he'll like, he talks about like 169, and like, hi, that's literally like half a mile from my house, you know? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's a cool thing about listening to uh, Hold Steady songs, if you happen to be, you know, from this all area. All the refs. Yeah. <laughs> When did you start writing about music and and think that that was a career path for you? Well, I started when I was um, fourteen. Really, I mean, I, I wrote wow. for my junior high paper. I, yeah. like, the first record reviews I ever wrote were of "Automatic for the People" by REM, oh, cool. and One of my favorites, and "Dirt" by Allison Chains. Those were the first Another two favorites. <laughs> I gave "Automatic for the People" an A, and I gave dirt a b plus and i should have okay. given that an a too that's an well, a record, you know I think. <laughs> my 14 year old self i have to write him an angry letter about that right. <laughs> um and then yeah i started writing um for my like daily local newspaper they had a teen page uh then that i started writing for when i was 15 and I'm, so i that so i was getting paid for that i was getting like 10 bucks i think a column yeah so i don't know i just always I I just had it programmed in me, I think, to be a music critic. You know, I just started doing it like pretty early and I've been really writing ever since. You know, I did it throughout high school. I wrote for my college paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I worked, I actually got hired by the same paper that I wrote for as a teenager. That was my first job out of uh, college. So I worked for a daily newspaper, I worked for all weeklies, you know, kind of did a little bit of everything. Yeah. And that's what's been cool about doing podcasts because, you know, I love doing podcasts. It's it's a lot of fun and it's to me it's just like the next iteration of sure. different media that I've worked in, you know, cuz like daily newspapers they still exist but they're obviously on the decline. Alt weeklies right. are almost gone at this point. You know, I'm working in digital media, but that's always pretty volatile. So, you know, you just have to be able to roll with the punches. I guess I'll be doing TikTok reviews here pretty soon. You know, I, it seems like <laughs> I just saw a story in Rolling Stone about how the future of music journalism is is TikTok. So, oh, good Lord. So we'll see about that. But yeah, I've I've always liked it. You know, and it just came from a very simple impulse of I love writing and I love music. So like, how yeah. can I combine this? And I was able to pull it off. So I that's feel amazing. Really, I feel really fortunate. For that what book do you want to write next can you talk about that or what ideas are brewing well i i just well i i have an agreement to write a book i haven't officially signed the contract yet um so i'm starting work on something right now that i won't say okay yet but if you All liked right. if you like my other books i think you'll like this one it's, okay it, it's in a similar <laughs> vein you know i'm not going off and doing a book about right said fred or something you know it's right. definitely and although that would be cool i would definitely do a right said fred book if i could sell that but it, yeah it, i don't know about that yeah <laughs> but uh yeah so i'll be i'm just about to start really writing that and so that'll be out in 2022 um so yeah that that's what i'm working awesome. on right now and, I, and there's always like different projects i have kind of percolating that i want to do it's just about whether you can actually pull them off Right, or get someone to buy it, but I've been pretty lucky with that too. So hopefully that will continue. Uh, so a couple of questions about the your your youth. Um, <laughs> what was your first? And this is not a hey, uh, I gotta give this guy a cool answer. What was your first real 
music love. And I'll just go ahead uh, and level set and say, legit, mine was Barry Manilow. Oh, yeah. Well, he's got some good tunes. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I was born in 1977. So, like, it was natural for me, like, around five or six to really love Thriller. Like, I loved Thriller because okay. everyone loved Thriller. Yeah. So, I'll say that, although I feel like that almost doesn't count because it was, like, so ubiquitous at that time. So, I remember, like, the first rock band I loved was Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah, man. Uh, sports. I had sports <laughs> on cassette. It's such a good album. I had that. And then four, I had that on cassette yeah. as well. And yeah, I had uh, those records. I actually um, got to spend time with Huey Lewis too. I did. A, I wrote a profile of him in, in 2013, and which was pretty wild too, you know? Uh, yeah. Because he was a huge deal for me. Yeah, because, you know, it's it's wild to think of a band like that being pop stars now because it's like, like a guy like a guy who looks like huey lewis like just imagine yeah. him being a pop star it's so <laughs> strange but like you know like when i was a little kid you know in the mid 80s they had sports uh you know they had the back to the future song sure and then it was had, bigger than that and they had four you know which had hip to be square on it and like yeah. a bunch of other hits so like from like 83 to 86 87 i mean they were like as big as any band yeah really um, so yeah, Huey Lewis in the news, they taught me about the heart of rock and roll and, yeah. uh, um, <laughs> so, I'm grateful for those that. Those are such great songs. Yeah. I have to They're say amazing. too, that like, you know, I made a joke about that, but like, I think I did learn from the heart of rock and roll that like Cleveland is an important city in yeah. the history of rock music, you know, cause of Alan <laughs> Freed and all that stuff. And like, you know, he says the heart of rock and roll is in Cleveland is the lyric from that song. So, so, yeah. so Huey Lewis bit of a music historian there and uh, definitely oh, totally. ta- taught me something with that Yeah, song. my wife's family is from uh, Akron. Uh, they all live here now in Atlanta but um, and followed her here. Uh, but they, I went to Cleveland and Akron a bunch over the years and went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is, you know, I want to go back. It's just an amazing place to visit. And um, she went to, my wife went to Firestone High, home uh, of... Uh, Chrissy Hind uh, and the Black Keys and Devo, and and I think there was one more. All went to Firestone High, wow, which is a, a pretty incredible, you know, from a single high school, pretty incredible lineage. Yeah, well, in Ohio in general, tons of great bands. Yeah, maybe, maybe my favorite band of all time, Guided by Voices from Dayton, Ohio. A huge Guided by Voices fan, and then you have the National. I mean, they started. Like, those guys are from Cincinnati. Yeah, it's another sure. band that kind of like I think they came together in Brooklyn, but um, James Gang, James Gang, absolutely, yeah, Ohio, great, and you know I always I love the way the flag for Midwestern rock bands, yeah, you know, like I, I, I wave the flag for the Midwest in general, but yeah, I always love to see Midwest stepping up, doing something. I mean, I'm from Wisconsin. There's not like a ton of great bands really. Uh, from Wisconsin, unfortunately, we have like the Violent Femmes and the Bodines. Of course, Bonnie. I don't remember the Bodines? The Bo- Bonnie Vera is, is the big one now, which is cool. oh sure. And I, I went to school in Eau Claire, which is where yeah uh, Justin is from. So he actually wrote a song. There's a song on the second Bonnie Vera record called Towers, which is about one of the dorms on <laughs> U- UW Eau Claire campus. It's called There's Towers North and Towers South. Yeah, and I lived in Towers North my freshman year. So, so there's a song about your college dorm. I know. See, <laughs> it's like, look, 
when you live in the Midwest, you have to like grasp onto these things. It's not like yeah. when you live in New York <laughs> and there's like a million New York songs, you know, like every Lou Reed song you can just point right. to and be like, oh yeah, it's about my town. Um, well, R.E.M. never wrote a song about Reed Hall, so I'm a little disappointed oh, now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Athens, I love. Athens is a great town. You know, I was just there last weekend for the first time in a while, and uh, my daughter was at my mom's house spending the night, and my wife had an event all day. And I was like, you know what? I haven't been to Athens in forever. I have a day to myself. And I went and just uh soaked it all in again it, you know it, it was some you know it was like the best six years of my life of my youth let's say and uh the the rem steeple is still there from the church where they played their first gig i've i've seen the, that yeah I've, it's still right there i mean I've seen they, the they preserved it yeah it's cool and you and can they, also um, and they also have like those tower things that are on the back cover of murmur yeah the train trestle the train trestle yeah yeah that's it yeah you can go and see that D's is still there automatic for the people yep. it was this local soul food restaurant and all that stuff is within like, you know, a half a mile of a couple of places that I lived and Stipe still owns, uh, I think he owns three houses now, which is, uh, I think the rich guy move, which is you buy your house and then eventually you buy the neighboring house and then eventually you buy the other side neighboring house. Right. Just to sort of, uh, sock yourself in a little bit. But, um, I know he lives in New York, but you know, he's still there and you could go on any given night and bump into, to Stipe still, uh, even though he spends most of his time in New York. And I think that's one of the charming things about that band is that they still have, you know, Bill Barry still lives just outside Athens on his farm. Barry's the one member of REM I haven't interviewed. Oh, no. Uh, I'd love to interview Bill Barry. I remember when I interviewed Michael Stipe, that was another uh, one where I had the knot in my stomach the night before. Yeah. Uh, because I was, you know, still am such a huge REM fan. And I'd also heard that he was like, a bit standoffish in interviews could be difficult uh-huh. and he couldn't have been warmer and nicer and like, oh, that's and, great. And, and more open. Like we were talking about all these different, th- I mean, it was just about REM, our interview. And he, uh, you know, was very frank about like what he thought the band did well and what, you know, he thought they didn't do well. Oh, interesting. And very matter of fact. And, you know, had a great sense of humor and um, yeah, all those guys, they are one of the only bands that like when they walked away, you felt like, okay, they're done because they just seem like guys yeah. that who feel like, okay, we did what we wanted to do. And now we want uh-huh. to be normal. We want to have a normal lives and they don't seem to have, you know, the ego that like yeah. other bands of that level would have, like where eventually you want to be in front of 50,000 people again. You know, like I've seen Peter Buck play with so many different bands yeah he just loves it like he'll play with alejandro escovito he'll like he'll put out a record on like what that i think that label mississippi records like out in Uh oregon where it's like you can only buy it on vinyl and it's like you know two thousand copies pressed or whatever like that's so cool and he's you know he's just the guy who just he's like you know got tens of millions of dollars i'm sure and he's just like i don't need to be a superstar anymore i can just do whatever i want to do and I just want to play music. And uh, I can't think of like another band that was like that huge. Yeah. Where the members just did that, walked away. And I really think, like, I don't think they'll ever get back together. I think you're right. In a real way. I think they could do, I could see them getting back together and playing a show at the 40 watt. And that's yeah. the only time they get to back together. 
But in terms of doing like a real tour or like an album or something, I, I, I'm sure that won't happen. Yeah, the 40 watt man, many, many nights there. That, uh, one of my, I guess my favorite, um, sort of college rock band of all time is Pavement. And, oh, yeah. I saw Pavement and on that first tour for Slanted, uh, without even knowing who they were, it was just, there's a great, uh, alt weekly there called the Flagpole Magazine. And I, uh, I thought you were about to whip out the flagpole. You just reach for something. <laughs> um, the flagpole, you know, it was in Athens in the early nineties and you would, you would just read up like who's playing the 40 watt for $4 on a Wednesday. And like, let's just take a flyer and go. And pavement had an interesting write up. And I was like, eh, let's go check these guys out. And from that night on, uh, I was like, these are my guys. And wow. uh, they have remained my guys ever since then. It was sort of a shit show of a concert. <laughs> uh, the, the you know uh, Gary, the drummer at the time, just destroyed his drum set, and Steve Malkmus ended up passed out on the stage with like cigarettes falling out of his breast pocket. And he came back and apologized. And I was like, man, these guys are the shit. They're my dudes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I got to see um, Drive By Truckers there. That's the only like. The, oh, cool. Because I was in town to do a story on them. And they do this thing. Um, I mean, they didn't do it this year, obviously, but like they, they do this thing in the winter where they play like a three show stand yeah. at the 40 watt. So I was at one of those shows and that was definitely like pretty cool to be at the 40 watt. Just man, they're ha- so good. Having like grown up a huge REM fan and knowing about yeah. the 40 watt. It's a great from, club. Just from reading about them. Yeah. And I love Athens too. It reminds me of, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, yeah, which, sure. which is, you know, like another sort of like liberal college town yep. in the middle of like just conservative country. It's like a little yeah. oasis, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Like Austin too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Austin's a bigger city, but um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it, it felt very comfortable when I was there. It felt you know, like, oh, I, I, I haven't been here before, but I feel like I have. Yeah, that's cool. Stuff You Should Know did a um, sort of an off-the-beaten-path live show in Lawrence, Kansas one time. And I got those Athens vibes big time when I was in Lawrence. Uh, I was like, man, this this is this town is the shit. I love what it's about. <laughs> yeah, totally. I haven't been there, but I've heard good it's things. It's awesome. Uh, and then another sort of childhood music question before we move on. Uh, to what we're going to be talking about, which is music movies. What was your first concert? Like what, you know, you consider your first real concert. I like my parents dragged me to Kenny Rogers and Bobby Goldsboro when I was a kid. But like my first show that I wanted to go to and paid for was Cheap Trick in 1983. Oh, wow. That's another um, great Midwestern band. Yeah. And, and one of them, I've seen them probably nine or 10 times, including a weird 40 watt. And I'm not weird. It was great. It was kind of weird that they played there. Uh, this epic 40 watt show, uh, like 15 years ago. But, um, what was your first real concert? Um, well, like in terms of like a show that I was taken to, um, like by my, uh, by my dad, it was when I was nine, I saw the beach boys at the Marcus amphitheater in Milwaukee. It was the first show at the Marcus amphitheater, which is where, uh, where Summerfest takes place in Milwaukee. For those uh-huh. who know what Summerfest is, um, and that, that would have been like 1986, okay. and I, the Kokomo years, it was right before Kokomo. So, okay. so it, you know, it was just like a greatest hit set, and I'm, I was so young, 
you know, I didn't really even know who the Beach Boys were. Although, like, when they started playing, I knew a lot of their songs already from oldies radio. Right. And I had a great time. I, I loved it. I'm trying to, I, I wish I knew if Brian Wilson was there. Because it's possible that he might have been at that show, but I don't know if, if he was or not. But certainly Carl Wilson was still with them. Dennis Wilson sure. had died, you know, three years before that. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Like, And I love the Beach Boys. So that was pretty great. Um, Another great Rivals episode, by the way, yeah, the Mike Love one. Yeah, totally. Legendary um, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, like in terms of like, you know, a show that I paid for myself. Like one of the first big ones was I saw the Rolling Stones on the Voodoo Lounge tour in 1994 yep. at Camp Randall Stadium in in Madison, and I was I think literally in the last row. And you know, I was already a class, <laughs> I was already a big classic rock fan when I was 16, and I remember feeling like a little snarky about like, oh, is this going to be any good? Mm-hmm. You know, because at that time the Stones seemed super old, you know, and I thought, oh, they're going to they they're going to retire. <laughs> well, Mick Jagger was 50 on that tour, I know. and you know. At that time, there weren't a lot of 50-year-old rock stars in 94. You know, now, you know, we're used to, I mean, Bob Dylan's going to be 80 uh, next year. So that's been normalized. But I remember thinking, like, I got to see the Stones on this tour because they're going to probably retire after this, you know? (laughs) And that was like 26 years ago. That's so funny. They came out, and I forget what they played first, but it was um, awesome. It was unbelievable. And And even in a stadium... Like the magnetism of of Mick and Keith, especially, was just it. It was intoxicating. Like I, I was just I was in heaven during that show. I remember they played all down the line from Exile on Main Street, and I loved oh, Exile. Wow. And I wasn't expecting them to play that, um, so I was pretty excited. And they and Keith sang three songs, I think, including Memory Hotel from Black and Blue, which is you know not a hit. Yeah, pretty big deep cut. Any Keith sung songs, I was going nuts for because I loved Keith Richards was one of the first like rock stars I really came to love, and I still love Keith. Um, but at that time, especially, I, I just worshipped Keith Richards, so that was so that was pretty great. So yeah, so this so it, probably the Stones would be like one of the first like kind of like shows I paid to go see, and and that was a big deal too because I had to get permission to like drive yeah. down. That was, that was like a two uh-huh. hour drive. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that was great. That was so much fun. They are remarkably a band. I haven't seen, I have, I mean, I've been going to concerts, like I said, since I was 12 years old and like big, big shows, you know, when I was little, I was going to the, to the, the Omni in Atlanta, you know, our, our local, you know, basketball arena. And uh, obviously once college kicked in, I was going to like smaller shows, uh, along with big shows still, but I have some big holes. Like I've never seen the stones. I never got to see the who, and I had a chance to see the who in the eighties when it was still, you know, pretty vital. And John Entwistle was still with them. I never, I've never seen, I never got to see Pink Floyd. I never saw that. I didn't go to that plant page tour. Um, I never saw Bowie. Like some of my idols, I'm just kicking myself for not going to these shows you know, and, and I guess part of it was finances back then, like not being able to afford to go to all the shows. Um, I've got a great concert list, but those like those are some pretty big holes to have not seen the Stones at yeah. all with so many opportunities. I really regret that. Well, and hopefully you'll still have a 
a chance. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was gonna see them this year again. Yeah. Like they were gonna, you know, they were going on tour, and I there was a month in May where I was going to see the Stones, Guns N' Roses, and Ween, and I was like, this is gonna be great. <laughs> and th- and I had that planned in like February or whatever, and then yeah. you know, uh, we all know what happened next. I mean, but like someone like Bowie, for instance, like I've never seen Bowie either. And it's just like, oh, you know, that's gone forever. You know, like we're never going to get a chance to see that, which is a real bummer. Or um, I never saw Pink Floyd either. I've seen Roger Waters, which was pretty great. Like his band is so good. Yeah. And he actually, he has this guitar player when I saw him named Jonathan Wilson, who's a great singer, songwriter in his own right and great producer. Like he's produced all the father John Misty records and like Dawes and other bands like that. But he was the guitar player in Roger Waters band and he would sing the David Gilmore parts too. Oh yeah. And it was so perfect. And like the guitar solos that he was playing were like note for note from the record, which I'm a little mixed on. Right. But, also, those solos are amazing. So I was—you want to hear them? I was kind of excited <laughs> to sit. In, uh, you know, I was, I was in an arena with an amazing light show, listening to like the guitar solo from "Comfortably Numb." You yeah, know, just like, pretend it's David Gilmore. Yeah, I was like, this is pretty cool. Like, I was—it's like you can be cynical about these things and be like, oh, yeah. it's not the real band, or you know, blah blah blah. But when you're in that seat, that plastic seat, and the light show's going, and that music yeah. is playing. I'm sorry, but like my, I'm a, I can be a cynical rock critic, but my cynicism evaporates. It's like, I don't, I'm not that powerful of a cynic. Yeah. It's like this, <laughs> this stuff is working for me like gangbusters, you know, like there's a reason why this is so popular. Like it works, Yeah, you know? Well, I had tickets for the Roger Waters tour this summer, really good seats. Didn't happen. I had tickets for Guns N' Roses. Didn't happen. Well, um, I have been on a on a mission now to like to just not miss these big shows, especially if it's an older artist. Like I, I went and saw that Elton John tour three times. Oh yeah, uh, and the Fleetwood Mac, both the with Lindsay and then with uh, with Campbell and Neil Finn, and that was great. Um, so I, I try not to miss anything now that I can actually afford to go to concerts and get like decent seats finally in my life. Right. Uh, I saw Petty, you know, from like the fifth row on that last tour. And uh, I think the two previous tours as well. So I'm not, and certainly after the pandemic is over, like no one should be snoozing on live tours well, ever again. And that's why, you know, part of me is like, oh, are people going to be afraid to go to shows? Because there's such a, you know, I know like when I went to shows, I never thought about germs. You know, I never thought right. about like someone coughing, 10 rows ahead of me and me feeling like, Oh, well, I'm in yeah. danger now. But then there's the thing you're talking about where people are so primed, you know, It'll like take a minute. I mean, like, you know, I, I managed to see a couple things in early 2020, uh-huh. a couple live shows, but this is easily the least amount of music oh, yeah. I've seen since I was what, like 16, 15, 16 years old. Oh yeah. Um, it's been crazy. And that's true for everyone, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's such a, it, it's really weird. I mean, there's so many things that we've lost that I try not to dwell on it too much because it can really drag you down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, hopefully we'll we're- make up for it. Yeah. Hopefully we're on the verge of coming back and it will be so fun. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, all right, my friend, let us uh, segue here into music movies. And what I did, everyone, is I emailed uh, Steve and was just like, listen, let's just not hem ourselves in. Make a list of your favorite five uh, music movies. It can be concert movies, can be documentaries, can be biopics, it can be whatever. And uh, you are fully allowed to cheat like crazy <laughs> because I'm looking at my top five list and it has probably 13 <laughs> movies and then another 12 honorable mentions. Oh, man. So let's just start talking about these. Um, I'll go ahead and just start it off. And these are not, for me, they're not ranked. I think you ranked yours. But yeah, uh, on my list of top five, I kind of tried to categorize it. Uh, I did concert movies and my two favorite concert movies are The Last Waltz and Stop Making Sense. A little on the nose, but yep. that's the truth. Yep. You can't go wrong with those. Yeah, I for my list, I had sort of a subcategory where I was like, I'm not going to put these on my list because I feel like people know these movies or I feel like Charles is probably going to mention them. Uh-huh. And those were two that I but I but I also wanted to make sure I shouted them out because right. <laughs> they're great. Like I'm not saying they're not great. I'm like I'm not being like a snob here and being like, oh yeah, the last waltz isn't great or stop making sense isn't great. Like they're they're great. But I also want to like recommend some movies that maybe people haven't seen that I think are really great. But yeah, those two, if you haven't seen them, you have to see them. They're like the gold standard, I think, for concert films. They really are. And I think in sort of two different ways and in one similar way. Um the last waltz has all that other uh, all that other great footage. Uh, Stop making sense does not do that. But I think the things they have in common, which was pretty genius from Scorsese and, and Jonathan Demi, was the immediacy of the film work. And I think part of that is due to the fact that just back then they didn't have you know fifty foot techno cranes and like the way they shoot concerts now is so different. Back then, it was it was people on stage with a camera, largely. You know, you had one set up wide for your wide shot. But so, what's so great about both of those is just the immediacy, of, and especially Stop Making Sense. I mean, you don't even see the audience, really. Right. It's this weird thing that feels like it's in this vacuum where you're kind of on stage with this avant-garde rock band. Um, the Last Waltz feels like a bit more of a party, but they both work for those reasons, I think. Yeah, I think Stop Making Sense is the greatest sort of visceral concert movie like it, it it it's the concert movie that comes closest to actually feeling like a show mm-hmm. where like i've been to screenings of stop making sense and people will get up and dance yeah. like during the show and i've never seen that for other concert films the last waltz to me and I think you make a great point about how that was shot. I mean, if you if you look at a film like Woodstock or Gimme Shelter, like the early, yes. you know, like those late 60s, like kind of like the early great concert films, it's more like handheld stuff. It feels mm. like a little grittier, which I love that about those movies. But there's a grandness to The Last Waltz. It's like the it's like Gone with the Wind of concert movies. Like it just looks so great. And the compositions of it are are, are so wonderful. And there's just like a sweep to it that I think was really unique to concert movies at that time. And the fact too, that you just have these like towering figures of rock history all assembled at once. You have like muddy yeah. waters on stage, you know, yeah. like how amazing is that? And then you, you've got like Van Morrison in the purple suit. You've got yeah. like Bob Dylan with like 
looking like oh, a rabbi, man. you know. Totally. Uh, Neil Young and his booger nose and his cocaine booger nose. Exactly. Neil Young <laughs> with the booger nose, which someone pointed this out to me recently. If you look at the shirt that Neil Young is wearing, mm-hmm. which I've never noticed this, but like if you, because you can see it a couple times, it's like a drawing of two people doing a 69. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> I never noticed it. It's like, what in the hell, Neil Young? Yeah. What are you thinking? But that's funny. It's and another then, and then the great detail. interviews, like just uh, you know, Robbie, of course, is bloviating about everything, but you know, the best interviews you're gonna see of Richard Manuel for sure, even though it was sad and he was just so oh, yeah. fucked up. Um and Levon was he had a very obviously cynical outlook about the whole project, but it's still some pretty great interview footage of him. Yeah, like you read Levon's book this wheels on fire and he just yeah, tra- he trashes the last waltz like he hates yeah. the movie big, and, big time. <laughs> and he talks about like how miserable he was being interviewed but then like you watch the movie and he's like doesn't seem like it he's super charming he's telling that story about like being in arkansas and like how yeah late at night you know girls just start shaking it and like the band starts uh-huh. playing a little you know like, he's telling these great oh, stories man. and it's so damn charming but like apparently he he, he hated the whole experience. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think he just hated w- being taken off the road and feeling yeah. that Robbie Robertson sort of decided that unilater- unilaterally, and he just associates that with the movie now. Maybe I don't know, but well, on the whole Hollywood thing, which he was just, you know, uh, yeah, I think at that point he, there was just Robbie animosity overall. Yeah, which is too bad. You know, I I, know. I wish, um, because I do think. Some of his animosity, I think, is misplaced. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I do think that, like, it's tr- – I don't know how much we want to get into the weeds with that. We have to talk about these other movies, but <laughs> I won't even get into that. Just listen to our episode uh, yeah, on that. Yeah, but, I, sure. but I'll just say, like, I wish those two guys could have like, had a real reconciliation and not, like you said, where it seemed yeah. like Levon was unconscious and – I know. And Robbie so just kind of showed up at the end. <laughs> All right. What's your first entry? Um, so I'm going to go. So I just want to say like, okay, so I, I mentioned that I had this list of movies that aren't on my list just because I felt like they're like the canon music movies. Uh-huh. But I but I love all these movies. But I just wanted to maybe pick other movies that maybe people haven't seen. So like. Yeah, I, like uh, those are the be the honorable mentions. Yeah. This, so like Last Waltz, Stop Making Sense. I had Gimme Shelter on there. Uh-huh. The Rolling Stones movie. Um, of course. And um, Don't Look Back, the Bob Dylan movie from 1967. How can that not be in there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And these, and honestly, like my honorable mentions, like they could be my top five. But yeah, again, I, easily. I, I was hoping I could maybe make some recommend. I feel like people have seen these movies. So like I wanted to recommend some things people haven't seen maybe. But the other one was A Hard Day's Night uh, by the Beatles, the Beatles movie. Yeah, 1964. On it's one of the most, I mean, that's like one of my favorite movies period of all time yeah. just super charming comedy aside from the music music is obviously wonderful but the comedy in that movie is so great and yeah so many quotable lines like all the other actors like the guy who plays the grandpa is uh-huh. great you <laughs> totally. know uh so so many wonderful parts of that movie uh so those were the movies on my honorable mentions my number five movie and i have a bunch of parentheticals on this too this okay. is sort of like my comedy category oh okay um and so obviously you have like this is spinal tap you yeah. have pop star never stop popping 
You have the great movie. I don't know if you've seen this. All you need is cash. The Ruddles movie that Eric Idle did in 1978, (laughs) the Beatles parody. Uh Uh, I love all those movies. Those are all basically like fake documentaries, you know, so, so sort of doing a parody of like the documentary genre, the movie that I actually put on my list at number five is a parody of music biopics. And I feel like after this movie was made, I'm shocked that music biopics continue to be a thing because uh-huh. <laughs> this movie nails biopics so perfectly. Yeah. Like I watched it again last night. Like you, you can't watch this movie and then watch Bohemian Rhapsody and take it seriously. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody is kind of ridiculous anyway, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, the movie is walk hard. The Dewey Cox star story. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's so perfect. Like just nailing the sort of like awkwardness of biopics, the, you know, the scene I was laughing the hardest. I always have a different scene that I laugh hard at, but like the scene early in the movie where they show young Dewey Cox mm-hmm. in this uh, grocery store and he comes across these two blues guys and then, yeah. and then he takes a guitar and he starts, he learns guitar instantly. And then he starts yeah. singing in this like blues guy voice. It's so perfect. It's so it perfect great. for these things. And like how there's like a scene a little bit later where he's like, uh, I'm going to walk hard. <laughs> I'm going, you know, like how you have to like repeat the title of like a song like in the dialogue, right. which is something that like happens all the time in Walk the Line, that Johnny Cash movie. I mean, they, they really nail the Johnny Cash movie pretty bad yeah. in Walk Hard, but. Um, yeah. And Walk the Line was a great movie too. It is. The Joaquin Phoenix and yeah. performance, I think is great. Reese Witherspoon, I think is great. But um, yeah, just the sort of. Um, reductive nature of biopics and how uh and just the corniness of them like walk yeah. hard it just nails it so perfectly it's so. a tough genre you know like i love bohemian rhapsody but just because i'm such a queen fan right um i mean the but, li- you know like the live aid part is super entertaining i mean yeah you can't not be roused by that it's it's well done but but they're t- they're a tough genre to pull off and, and make a really great movie like if you're talking about really great movies, it, I mean, as much as I loved it, it, it was corny and cheesy and did not deserve like these Academy Awards, I don't think. But I think it just it hit me right in the feels because I'm such a Queen fan. Like I didn't care. I wanted I forgave it of everything. Right. Because I just love it so much. Yeah. You know, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, I I can step back and I can point out all the flaws with it because it's a pretty ridiculous movie. And there's also like some weird things that they do with Freddie Mercury's story, especially yeah. at the end and like the chronology of like when he got sick and when he found out about it. Like there's yeah, some weird really things. Rearranged. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of weird if you know the real story, but um, you're right. Like though, it's like you're in a movie theater listening to queen music for two hours. So like, yeah. even if the movie is flawed, like, are you not having a good time? I mean, right. it's still a good time at the end of the day. So yeah, totally. You know, it's not a great movie, but it was a very entertaining movie. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my next movie, I went uh, for this one movie about a fictional rock band, uh, almost famous, which I think is um, is a flawed movie in some ways, in that it's sort of overly saccharine at times. And, uh, but there's just something about it, man. When it came out, uh, going to see that movie in the theater was a real experience. I, I think Cameron Crowe really nailed 
more than many directors I've seen what it's what it might be like to be in a band. I thought he nailed the I thought the live music performance uh, sections of that movie were amazing and really realistic. Uh, and it, it was just such a charming movie in every way. It was, it was like the best of what I used to love about Cameron Crowe, like kind of before he started making what I think are pretty subpar movies. Um, I love it. I love those songs and I love that story. And uh, that movie still holds a, like a pretty special place in my heart. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I mean, as a music critic, that is the rare movie where a music critic is the hero of the film. Yeah, it's kind of your story and, in some ways. I mean, I've called that like the Top Gun of music criticism. Yeah. Like how, <laughs> like, like people saw Top Gun and are like, I want to join. You know, right. the, I want to fly airplanes, you know, it's like you see almost famous and you're like, I want to be a rock critic. This seems like the best. And, and, and the Lester Bang stuff was so cool. That's the thing. Like, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's portrayal of Lester Bangs is yeah. the, like, that's more famous than Lester Bangs now. Like, like I, I, I know like, like he's like overtaken that uh, like reality. And I, I really think that like, like that version of Lester Bangs is like the most famous rock critic ever. You know, it's I like wish that, we could have seen that movie too. Oh man, what that would have been like, yeah. like a, a a movie where just it's just Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, hanging out with like Lou Reed and yeah. Biggie Pop. That would have been amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, I love I love Almost Famous too. I I agree with you about like the live music scenes. I I I appreciate that like Cameron Crowe made them like a credibly like okay band. Yeah, you know, like because I don't think Stillwater is supposed to be Led Zeppelin. Or the Almond no. Brothers. It's based on his experiences with those bands, but like they're not supposed to be as good as those bands. They're just supposed to be like kind of like a mid-level, like Black Oak, Arkansas, or something. Yeah, you know, like, like a, theater-sized. Yeah, like a like a boogie rock band from the seventies, and yeah, like he co-wrote those songs with Nancy Wilson yeah. from, from Heart, who was his wife at the time. And like like so like Fever Dog, you know, like songs like that. They did it's a good great job. song, <laughs> and I think too almost famous what I respond to in it is like the love of music. Like there's yeah. a, it expresses what it means to love music so much or love a band so much in a really kind of pure and I think genuine way Yeah, where, yeah, it might be a little corny, but like, you know, loving a band is kind of corny, you know, that's the way yeah. it is. And like, that's kind of the great thing about it where you just kind of give yourself up to something and you're not self-conscious about it. You just love it unequivocally you know and i i appreciate that fearlessness in a way like to not be cool i'm not gonna be cool about this because i love it you know that that's the way it should be yeah it was a pure love letter and you know if you're a music fan you can't help but love the end of that movie when uh when billy crudup comes to that house and gives him that interview in the bedroom and the way he wrote that uh you know, I think the line was something like, what do you, what do you love most about music or being in a band? And he said, and he said something like, you know, to start with everything <laughs> and, and, the, and they just trail it off from there. And it's just, I still sort of get chills at that moment. It was just a love letter to, to rock and roll yeah, in yeah. every way. Tangerine in the background, that Led Zeppelin oh, song. God. You have like yeah, the, the music cues were crazy. And the bus going into the sunset at the end. It's yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like that iconography that just speaks to me. Like I will be a sucker yeah. for that any me day too. of the week. Um, so the next movie on my list um, is, you know, if you love the last waltz, 
I'd recommend this movie. It's a little less well known, but I think it's really great. It's called Chuck Berry Hail Hail Rock and Roll. I've never seen that. Great movie. Came out in 1987, directed by Taylor Hackford. It's about this uh, concert that Chuck Berry played in his hometown of St. Louis. Uh, I guess it would have been 1986 um, when he was 60 years old. And he assembled this all-star band like Keith Richards was on guitar. Uh, the bass player from NRBQ was on bass. I can't remember his name. Um, I think Steve Jordan was on drums and like Eric Clapton shows up at one point. To Eric play. Clapton always shows up. Yeah, Eric Clapton. <laughs> yep. That's the link, I guess, between this and The Last Waltz. Sure. Um, so it's a concert movie, but before the concert movie part of it begins like the first half of it is just about chuck berry and uh following him and just what his career was like at this moment in his life how he was just yeah. flying from town to town playing with pickup bands like he didn't have his own band he just played with, oh, with really? like local musicians essentially and like keith richards talks about how you know he wants to do this concert because every time he's seen Chuck Berry, it's always been bad. He's like, he's always playing with these like local musicians who. What a weird thing to do. Are good. Well, I think it was like, you know, it was probably cheaper for him to do that because you don't yeah, have maybe. to have, you don't have a band on retainer. You know, you just show up. These guys are so excited just to play with Chuck yeah, Berry. He's taken a hundred percent of the door. <laughs> probably like he's probably kicking these guys 50 bucks and like a case of right. beer or something. Interesting. Um, there's a great story. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's in the movie and he tells a story about how Bruce Springsteen early in his career opened up for Chuck Berry and like his band ended up being Chuck Berry's backing band. Mm -hmm. So he tells this great story about how like they're on stage, you know, Bruce Springsteen's playing lead guitar or, or rhythm guitar or whatever in Chuck Berry's band. And like, he has no idea what Chuck's about to play. And they have to figure out, like, Chuck just counts in and starts playing. And, you know, Chuck Berry, like, the riffs of his songs, they kind of sound alike. So yeah. they have to figure out what song they're playing and in what key. And it's just amazing Bruce to hear. was always good on the fly like that, though. Yeah, totally. And had been known to do stuff like that in his own band, like, you know, follow me in G. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's just wild to see, you know, just to imagine, like, a young Bruce Springsteen playing with Chuck Berry. It's kind of like a dream type thing to imagine. That's so uh, cool. So yeah, great movie. Great. Uh, you know, it's great. I mean the mute, the concert part of it is great, but like all the stuff that leads up to it is great. There's a great scene like where Chuck Berry and Keith Richards get into an argument, like where they're just screaming at each other uh, wow. over uh, like how to properly play some song. Uh, really? So wonderful movie. Um, and yeah, I feel like, it was critically acclaimed at the time, and it's been overlooked a little bit over the years. I think you're right, but it, definitely seek it out. It's it's really great. All right, that's I gotta add that to the old list. It's something I've seen clips of over the years uh, a lot, but for some reason, just never got to it. Oh yeah. Um. All right. So my next one is a movie about a fictional Motown uh, R and B band, and it is Dream Girls. Uh, the great 2006 film from Bill Condon. Uh, I love Dream Girls. My wife loves Dream Girls. I think it's got some of the best original songs of any uh, music movie of all time. The acting is amazing. Uh, Eddie Murphy is unbelievable. Um, Jamie Foxx, Beyonce. I mean, it's it's really one of my favorite music movies of all time. And I, I grew up as a kid. Like, my parents weren't into music very much. Uh, I wasn't like... I didn't have the dad that was like, hey, this is 
Simon and Garfunkel, you got to listen to this. This is amazing. Right. Like they sort of liked music, but it just wasn't a big thing. Like I got my music from listening to Casey Kasem every weekend and being a, a radio head as a, you know, nine year old. And, um, the one album they did have though, was the big chill soundtrack, like every boomer. And <laughs> when I was whatever, I mean, I can't even remember when that came out. I had to be like eight or nine. I was introduced to, to some of the best music in history and I was introduced to Motown. And from that moment on, I was like, I was a nine and 10 year old that was listening to Aretha Franklin and the Supremes and Otis Redding and, uh, and I mean, you name it, man. And it just, it's a love that is still with me today. I still love one of my favorite things to do. And it's just a big group hangout is just put on a Motown. You can never go wrong with a Motown playlist. Oh yeah. As far as just satisfying the most people with like good time music. Yeah. It's the easiest music on the planet to like, I mean, who doesn't really like Motown? I mean, no matter what genre you might be into, yeah, you're putting on, you know, Supremes or four tops or something. It, yeah, people are going to respond positively to it. I've never seen Dreamgirls. I've heard it's great. I've heard Eddie Murphy's great. I heard he got robbed for you the Oscar. See it, it's great. I mean, the songs themselves are just phenomenal. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's broad. I think it was a Broadway show before it was a movie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, really, really great, great movie. Have you seen that movie, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, the, about the uh, the backing musicians? That were, I have that in twenty feet from stardom. Yeah, are a couple of my favorite uh, sort of behind the scenes docs. Those are good. Yeah, this the whole this the whole Motown factory. It's such a fascinating period that they could just like turn out this music in a very sort of like automated kind of way, and yet it was so great and it had so much soul to it. You'd think that there'd be a chance that this music could be kind of like you know forgettable. You know, because they were just churning it out so much. But they, right. those musicians were so great, and the songwriters were were just like the greatest ever. You know, they just hit upon a groove, and it was it was it was phenomenal. Yeah. So my next film is a movie that it's part of this wave. Like in the last ten years, there's been just like a ton of like music documentaries that have come out. Mm. Um, that are authorized documentaries. Like there was just this past week, HBO, they debuted um, the Bee Gees documentary, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Which I can't wait to see that. It, it, it's, you know, I have a couple qualms with it, but overall uh-huh. I really, really liked it. I think it's it's a very entertaining movie. Um, but I think like the best example of like this recent run mm-hmm. of like artists authorized docs is History of the Eagles which came out, I think, in like 13 or 14. Yeah. And this is a movie where, you know, if you don't like the Eagles, I think you would actually enjoy this film more than a person who loves the Eagles because it's the rare movie like this that I mm-hmm. think is an actual warts and all depiction mm-hmm. where the main guys do not come off very well. Like Don yeah. Henley, Glenn Fry don't come off very well. To what degree that was that they were conscious of that, I don't know. Uh, yeah. It may have been over their heads a little bit. Um, but this movie, to me, it's such an entertaining snapshot, I think, of like what happened to rock music between the early 70s and the early 90s. Like, yeah. if, like if you just wanted to like kind of see one story that like 
traced how rock music went from being this sort of like hippie feel good kind of music to mm. being like uber corporatized, you yeah. know, boomer sort of like nostalgia thing by the nineties. This film covers it like, you know, covers it perfectly. It's like a long movie. It's about three and a half hours long. There's like two yeah. parts to it. Um, but it's so colorful. There's so many colorful characters in this movie. It's very quotable. Uh, there's, yeah. there's, uh, are we allowed to uh, swear on this podcast or do you like, do you fuck keep yes. It? Okay. So <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in this movie is like, it comes in the second half where, uh, David Geffen is talking about his feud with Don Henley mm-hmm. and he looks into the camera and he says, you know, and I, I, I think this is something he said to Don. He said, I'd rather die than let you fuck me. Yeah. And that's a line I quote all the time. Uh, I just think that's a hilarious line. Um, and by the way, we will definitely be doing a multi-part series on the Eagles on Rivals oh, I can't wait. very soon. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you if you love 70s rock, if you love just like kind of down and dirty like feuding, this movie is for you. And again, if you hate the Eagles, I know a lot of people hate the Eagles. I actually think you'll like this movie more because <laughs> – than if you're a fan, because you it'll justify your dislike of them, but you'll also be entertained by the movie as well. Yeah, so here's my history of the Eagles is I grew up a really big Eagles fan uh, when I was a kid. I I love the Eagles and um, knew, you know, knew all those songs backwards and forwards. Then I think because of classic rock radio, which is there's a great line in that movie where I think Henley is saying like, we were kind of fading away and then classic rock radio started and that was it. Like you could hear our songs forever now. And he's right. In a hundred years, I'll be playing the Eagles on a classic rock radio station. (laughs) Right. But it got so overplayed. And uh, I sort of also got caught up in the, the anti Eagles thing that came about, which I think big Lebowski has a little bit. Oh yeah. Shoulders. Absolutely. I, I kind of was done and didn't listen to the Eagles at all for many, many years. And this documentary made me rediscover my love for the Eagles to where I was like, why am I not listening to this band? I fucking love these songs. And that all culminated with me going to see this last Eagles tour as a guest. Uh, the stuff you should know listener is, um, one of the, uh, one of the techs, uh, he's not a guitar tech. He does, sort of does like, um, well, I don't want to divulge what he actually does, but he's on the crew, like a high high place member of the, of the road crew. And he uh, invited my wife and I and gave us, like, I got to stand on the stage at Phillips Arena with the curtain up, with everyone out there, with like 15,000 people kind of stirring. And I got to touch Don Henley's drum set. <laughs> and I got to touch, you know, Glenn Fry's son has all his dad's guitars there. And, uh, and I got to like touch those and touch Joe Walsh's guitars. And it was, it was amazing, dude. It was a, a great show. Um, what can you say about going to a concert where they play 35 songs that everybody knows by heart? Right. It's a ridiculous amount of great music and huge, huge monster hits. So that documentary was a big deal for me. That really made me rediscover my love for them. Yeah. And it, I agree. I mean, I have like a love hate relationship with the Eagles for like the reason uh-huh. that you're saying that like they were a band that would, I just felt like you could not get away from like yeah. for the longest time. But if you can actually step back and just look at those songs as like 
craftsmanship. I yeah. mean, they are like, you know, they're like a brick shit house of songwriting. I mean, you cannot penetrate those songs. They're like just perfectly written. They're almost yeah. like too perfect sometimes. Like, cause uh-huh. I, I sometimes <laughs> like things that aren't quite that well crafted, Yeah, but you can't deny you know what they put in those songs. There's a reason why those songs are played so much. Like you hear take it easy and it's like, it's kind of like a perfectly written song, you know, yeah. from, from beginning to end. Um, so yeah, but I, I just want to say, cause I do, cause I know some people instantly recoil at the Eagles. I think because of the big Lebowski thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I'm just saying like, if you're not a fan, I think you'll still enjoy this still movie watch it. because yeah. the story itself is like so interesting. And the characters in that movie yeah. are so colorful um, that it's more entertaining than most documentaries about a band that you might actually love, you know? Like, yeah. There's so much there that I think is really great. So yeah. History of the Eagles. All right. Number four on my list is actually uh, my favorite, favorite documentary about a band. Um, and this is hard because there's the list is long, but uh, as a Tom Petty fan, it doesn't get any better than Peter Bogdanovich's epic, epic, like four hour documentary on uh, Tom Petty in uh, the heartbreakers running down a dream. It's just, I mean, all rock documentaries should be four hours long. You know, after you've seen this. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, the Eagles one is that long too. I was thinking yeah. that during the Bee Gees documentary, like that is one of my quibbles with that movie is that that's another band with a fascinating story where it could yeah. be three or four hours long. And they end up cutting out some things that I think are interesting for the mm-hmm. sake in order to keep it under two hours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm so glad you brought up this movie. Like this might be my favorite movie to watch if I'm up late at night and yeah. uh, I've had some, shall we say, chemical enhancement and I, <laughs> sure. and, and I just want to hang out and feel good. Yeah, man. Put on running down a dream. Like I will always be happy to see that movie. It just puts me in like the happiest place. It's the best. I mean, there was no one better than Tom Petty and uh, the Warren Zanes book is just amazing. Like, I can just give it all to me. Uh, if, if Stan Lynch wrote a book, I would read it. Mm. Um, I think that that's, that's got to happen. That's a Rivals episode at some point, probably, oh, right? man. Yeah. Or, I mean, Stan Lynch and Jimmy Iovine, you know, who yeah. <laughs> I just wrote a huge, I wrote a list of like my favorite, 100 favorite Tom Petty songs. It was like a 12,000 word story I wrote. And I got to read that. And one of my beefs in there was, you watch that movie and you watch other Tom Petty things. Jimmy Iovine is always knocking Stan Lynch's drumming. And I think Stan Lynch is a great drummer. I He's love, great. I, I love, I, I love his drumming. I love his backing vocals. I love him as a personality. Like, I think he's funny. I could see how he would be obnoxious if you're Tom Petty. Like, cause he was always, I think, kind of giving Tom shit a little bit. But, and he wanted to be, he was a rock star. He was tall and good looking and right. sort of brash and all about the chicks. And um, I don't know. I think he added a, a, a sort of a wild card element to that band, though, that I love. I mean, no knocking, uh, was it Steve Ferrone? Yeah. He's a great drummer, too. But like, yeah, he Amazing. was Amazing. But he wasn't, he was going to do what Tom said, you know? Right. Like Stan Lynch. I think, the, I mean, I look, I love the Heartbreakers with Steve Ferrone, but like, I, I, seems like the heartbreakers with Stan Lynch is like a different entity. It kind of feels like more like a real band band type thing 
where each guy's got a personality to it. And yeah, I think that's what really comes through in the documentary too, is because of his success as a quote unquote solo artist. I think it's, it's sort of is like Bruce Springsteen, the E street band, but the heartbreakers were, they all, he always wanted to think of themselves as a real band. Like if it was up to Tom Petty, they may have just been called the heartbreakers. Right. And not Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. And, uh, one of my favorite parts of that documentary is this, the Stevie Nick story when, you know, they're obviously such good friends and she wanted to join them and like, it's Stevie <laughs> fucking Nicks and, and Tom Petty and that Gainesville drawl just goes, there are, we don't have girls in the heartbreakers. <laughs> <laughs> he says it in such a sweet way. It's, it's just such a great line. <laughs> it, it's wild. Then, 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 you know, Mike Campbell ends up in Stevie Nicks's band. I know. Later, you know, like she, obviously just wanted a little bit of that heartbreakers yeah feel you know that was a great tour i i didn't get to see that i've never seen fleetwood mac they're like one of the they're one of my big sort of holes in my history uh although i love fleetwood mac obviously um yeah i think with the, the heartbreakers even more than the e street band like mike campbell and ben montench those two guys especially like what they brought to Tom Petty yeah, songs. Man. It's so integral where, I mean, anytime he did another project, he still brought those guys, you know, yeah. like he had to have Mike Campbell, uh, writing shotgun and, and Ben Montench just as a keyboardist is like one of my all time favorites. Yeah. Um, he's amazing. He was just a kid. Yeah. When they started, he was the, he was the youngin. Yeah. And, and like a wild man too, until he, uh, sobered up. I mean, it seems like he was like the big party guy in the band, yeah. which I, I was a little surprised by when I watched the movie. I, I wouldn't have thought that necessarily, but, uh, he's a cool dude. Um, my next, next, my next movie is, um, I think one of the great movies of all time, not just a music movie, but just a, as a movie period. And that is Robert Altman's Nashville which came out in yeah. 1975. And um, one of the great things about this movie, and I feel like it was maybe the first movie to do this, is that you have all these actors in the movie who aren't musicians, but like they mm. actually ended up like writing their own songs and like playing instruments. So it's not one of those things where you watch a music movie and the actor starts playing a song and they're clearly like lip syncing something, which I know for me, always takes me out of the movie. Oh, totally. You know, if you're watching a movie and like, it's clearly not their voice and they're yeah, clearly tough. not playing the guitar. It's like, or they show like a live music scene and like, you know, the live sound is like way too perfect. Yeah. And, and people in the audience can talk to each other and yeah. they, don't have, they don't have to shout, you know, it's like, it's so phony. And in Nashville, along with just, obviously the great drama of that movie and all the great actors that are in it. I think like the way live music is presented in Nashville is so great. And I think yeah. like, like the classic scene in that movie, I think is the scene like where uh, Keith Carradine is in this nightclub and he starts playing a song called I'm easy. Yeah. Which great is a song, which is a song that he wrote, which is it's a phenomenal song and he's playing it and all these women that he's like slept with are in the audience mm-hmm. and they think that he's singing to them. And then finally they realize that, no, he's singing directly to Lily Tomlin. Who's in the back. Right. Who's <laughs> who he hasn't slept with yet. He's like trying to seduce her and he's playing this song. Um, and it's just such a wonderful movie. It's a great snapshot of like what that city was in the mid seventies, like the country yeah. music industry. 
but just also just a great snapshot of America. Uh, and obviously the ending is crazy. I won't say what the ending is if you haven't seen right. it, but um, wonderful movie, highly recommended, great music movie and just a great American film, period. Yeah. That's, I mean, one of the masters that was actually um, covered on this show. It was uh, it's the favorite movie of John Cameron Mitchell, Ooh. which I thought was pretty cool. And, you know, we might as well go ahead and throw Hedvig in the Angry Inch as one of the great music movies of all time, too. I, I've not seen that. Oh, dude. I need to see that. It sounds <laughs> like so I really great. need to see it. I've heard it's awesome for some reason. I don't know why I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, great music. Um, so my number five is a three-way tie, and I'm just going to categorize this as behind-the-scenes docs. And 20 Feet from, from Stardom is one that we mentioned, uh, along with Muscle Shoals and Wrecking Crew. And uh, and as you know, Muscle Shoals and the Wrecking Crew are about these two sort of groups of legendary backing musicians. Uh, and the, geez, I guess the, when did they start? The 50s through 70s? Yeah, that sounds right. Roughly. Um, and these, you know, these players that played on some of the most iconic songs of all time uh, and with the most iconic bands of all time. And they were largely unsung to a certain degree. Um, you know, speaking of drive-by truckers, Patterson Hood's uh, dad, David Hood, is was, I think he was a bass player, right? Yeah. Yeah. And on it, some of these great records. And it's just cool to see them get their due. Uh, as, same with uh, 20 Feet from Stardom and I guess Standing in the Shadows of Motown with with the backup singers. Uh, these people that are so talented and were comfortable in that position uh, of knowing, like, you know what? I'm never going to be the Rolling Stones or the Beach Boys, but I might play in a session for these guys. Yeah. I, I love when music films can access history like that through an unexpected portal you know yeah it's typical i think to make a movie about a really famous person and to focus on their story but sometimes those don't work as well because it's like well we know these stories already or we already have a fixed idea of like who um these big superstars are and it can be and if you watch a movie especially if it's like an actor playing a famous person a lot of times it doesn't work because you're like, yeah. well, you're not that guy. I know what that other person is. So, you know, I feel like those movies are great because you're meeting these, these musicians, but it's also like, it's another way to talk about like this wonderful music of the sixties and seventies that yeah we all know, but like, maybe we don't know this aspect of it. You know, I, I, I like with the um, muscle shoals, I, I remember being blown away just realizing that, you know, cause I, like I, I, you know, I'm aware of like the, you know, like Aretha Franklin and like a lot of the great soul people that recorded there, but like Bob Seger, like m- most of his great hits were recorded there, you know, and yeah. all those guys play on those songs and it just shows like they could play with, with a lot of different artists and, yeah. and make it work. I mean, cause they were just such great musicians. So yeah, it's, it's great to be able to learn those stories, you know, and kind of, add to your appreciation of music you already love. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so that was my last on the, on that list. I do have honorable mentions, but what's your uh, number five? So, and this is actually, I had it number one on my list. Okay. Um, although like all these could be number one, but I do love this movie a lot. And it's kind of related to what we were just talking about, because this is a film that I think did a really clever thing where instead of making a movie about Bob Dylan 
in the early 60s, like when he was first starting out in New York mm-hmm. and Greenwich Village in the folk scene, they made a movie about a character who could have been in that scene at the same time, who uh-huh. was like in Bob Dylan's orbit, but they just focused on him and made it about him and made it a movie not about success, but about failure and yeah, about know, coming to terms with failure. And that's Inside yeah. Lewin Davis. Oh, man. Um, the Coen Brothers movie. One of movie. my favorites. Yeah, this is like one of my favorite, I think, just Coen Brothers movies, which is like a great honor for me. To, I mean, like, because I love pretty much all their movies. Yeah, and same. I find that I have different favorites all the time. But Inside Lewin Davis is always among uh, my top favorite of their of their films. So great. And, you know, like I was saying, I, I love that idea that like, because in a way, I think that is like a Bob Dylan movie. And like Bob Dylan shows yeah. up at the end. Uh-huh. And like, and, <laughs> and, so perfect. And, and you don't see him clearly, you hear him and he's seen, he's presented in a way as like a sign of doom because <laughs> it's like, there's this guy, uh, you know, Oscar Isaac, brilliant performance by Oscar Isaac as, as yeah. Lewin Davis. And he's trying to make it. He's this sort of more kind of conventional folk singer. And it's like, no, like you're not going to be famous. You're not going to ever make it. There's this other guy who's just entered the scene, he's going to like do all the things that you wanted to do. Um, and I don't know. It's just such a great portrait to me because, you know, I, again, I, I feel like a lot of, you know, documentaries or books or whatever, it always focuses on the people who made it, you know, the, yeah. the icons, the legends, uh-huh. but I'm interested in the people who didn't make it. You yeah. know, the people who, who failed in a way that's more relatable. It's another reason why this is a movie. I, could have put on my list um, Amadeus, the Milo Schwerman oh, yeah, sure. film, which I think is a brilliant film. And it's a mm-hmm. similar thing where, you know, like Mozart's in that movie, but it's really about Salieri. It's, yeah. really, it's really about this guy who was very successful in his time, but he wasn't going to be legendary like Mozart. And his curse is that he can recognize that. Like he mm-hmm. recognizes the genius of this guy and he knows what it means for him. He knows that it means like, I'm just like a hack really compared to this guy and how painful that yeah. is to realize. Um, and I think there's a nice parallel there with inside Lewin Davis. It's a similar yeah, kind of thing he based on what was that guy's name? I think it's, uh, is it, is this, I guess I'm not educated enough on classical music. I guess I thought there actually was a Salieri, but is there not actually? No, no, no. I mean, uh, Lewin Davis. Oh, uh, Lewin Dave Davis. Van Ronk. Yeah. Dave Van Ronk. I think, I think that was like, I don't think it, I, cause Dave Van Ronk wrote a biography called the mayor of McDougal street. And I think some of the details from that book are in the, the film. I don't think, Uh I don't know if he's like supposed to be Dave Van Ronk. Exactly. I think Uh, it's a, just a loose inspiration. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, just a great movie, great soundtrack. Oh Um, man, the songs are so good. And uh, it's, it's a movie I like to watch this time of the year, especially yeah. because um, it's a good winter movie. It's a great winter movie. Yeah. So it's always cold. It's always cold. <laughs> and I mean, the scene in that movie that always stands out to me, it's funny that I just brought up Amadeus because F. Marie Abraham has, yeah. has one scene in Inside oh, Lewis so Davis. Good. He shows up to, you know, uh, Oscar Isaac shows up to audition at this famous folk club in Chicago. He's like traveled across the country, gone yeah. through all these problems. He plays them one song and he says, I don't hear a lot of money in this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny and it's heartbreaking, but yeah. it's like such an accurate sort of depiction of like, like, yeah, this guy's really good. 
He has a lot of talent, but you're not going to be the guy. You know, you're not going to make anyone a million dollars. And that's it. You had one yeah. audition and it's over. And uh, it's, it's so, so funny, man. So brilliant. I mean, Timberlake is so good. Adam Driver, uh, uh, Stark Sands, who plays Troy Nelson. Oh, yeah. Garrett Hedlund. I mean, John Goodman. It's such a great movie. Um, I just pulled up my favorite line of dialogue, uh, if you'll allow me, from Carrie Mulligan as Jean when she says, uh, they have that great scene in Washington Square Park, and she just hates him so much. She said, I, I should have had you wear double condoms, but if you ever do it again, which is a favor to women everywhere, you should not. But if you do, you should be wearing condom on condom <laughs> and then wrap it in electrical tape. You should just walk around always inside a great big condom because you are shit. <laughs> uh, I love that movie so much, man. Yeah. And the look of it, that sort of, uh, it's just a gorgeous movie to look at. I love everything about it. Yeah, it's kind of like fuzzy around the edges, you know? It, yeah. It kind of has, like, it, it feels like it's a little frosted over in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's it's sort of like a sepia tone, but, like, it's not, I don't know, there's something about that movie where it's romantic on one level, but yeah, it's also, like, kind of brutal all, well, at the same Cone time. Brothers. Yeah, like, it just, <laughs> it just, like, digs in, like, the, uh, the knife. Like, there's that scene, too, like, where... Uh, Gene's on stage. I think it's uh -huh. Gene. And Max, Max Casella is the owner of the club. Yeah. And he's just talking about the other, like all the women he wants to sleep with. He's like, yeah, that Gene. Uh -huh. Love to sleep with Gene. He's yeah. like, he I sleep with. But uh, yeah, it, it's so good, man. It's such a great movie. And, and Great choice. Yeah. So yeah, that would be number one on my list today. But if you right. if I was on your show again tomorrow talking about music yeah. movies, I'd probably have a different number. It's one. not fair. Yeah, and I'll have you back for sure because we have clearly a lot to talk about. But um, my honorable mentions, uh, and I'm just going to kind of tick through these quickly. If you're looking for good music movies and documentaries, uh, there's a movie called Sing Street, which oh, is just fantastic. Love that movie uh, from the director of Once, another great music movie. Um, Sing Street, coming of age uh, movie. Um, set in, I, I guess, is it Ireland or is it Scotland? Yeah, it's Dublin. Okay. In 1985. So if you have any love for sort of early to mid 80s, new wave, uh, wrapped in a great coming of age love story, I would highly recommend Sing Street. Absolutely. I, I, I'll second that. Uh, tr uh, along those similar lines, um, geographically, 24 Hour Party People. Oh. Another great movie. Yes. I just, I rewatched that not that long ago. Steve Coogan. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Just a tour well, de and force. another movie about a, a, a time and music history that just really encapsulates what was going on at Factory Records and um, just sort of the birth of this genre almost. Yeah. So good. I was also going to say uh, there's a movie called Control, which is a, yeah, uh, it's a, bio, it's a biopic about Joy Division. Yeah, very small indie style. Which is a, a good movie. I mean, because 24-Hour Party People kind of has like a Joy Division biopic tucked inside of it, like the yeah. first half of it. And like the Ian Curtis in that movie is so great. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, oh, that movie's so good. Yeah, that could have been on my list easily. I'm waiting for a great Smiths movie. I know that they did one a few years ago, but I don't think it was very well received, so I didn't even see it. I wasn't even aware that there was a Smiths movie. Yeah, let me see here. I'm going to look it up. It's called 
uh, England is Mine from three years ago, hmm. uh, based on the early years of Morrissey. Um, but it wasn't supposed to be very good, so I kind of was like, I don't even want to... Sometimes if you love a band, you don't want it tainted by a bad depiction. Right. Oh, yeah, it can be It can be uh, so annoying to see a movie about a band you love and they just get everything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a handful of documentaries that I think are great over the last like 10 years, uh, Searching for Sugar Man. Um, great, great movie with, with a cool central mystery. Uh, a band called Death. Great documentary about this kind of unknown uh, Detroit punk band, uh, like uh, all black punk band, which was a very much an outsider kind of thing at the time. Yeah, I like that movie. Uh, great too. documentary. Um, David Crosby, remember my name? Oh yeah, really warts and all. If you want to talk about warts and all documentaries, it's such a sad thing to watch on one hand, and that he's just like. I've been an asshole my whole life, and now I'm alone because of it. <laughs> I know. Well, and yeah, I, I mean, we did a four-part series on Crosby, Stills, and so Nash. Great. Or yeah. was it? It was three parts actually. But yeah, I, I'm a sucker for any CSNY content. Oh man, I mean, their story is crazy with a number of uh, beefs and allegiances and. Like, I'll go make a record with you, but not you. And uh, now we'll get together and make some music, but not him. And we'll <laughs> tour together, but Neil Young will be out of here in three weeks. And it's just such a crazy story. Uh, let me see here. Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice. Yes. Great, great doc. Love that. Uh, Beats, Rhymes, and Life, A Tribe Called Quest uh, from Michael Rappaport. It's a little uneven and not the best film, but if you love A Tribe Called Quest, it's it's a pretty great documentary. Yeah, I was a fan of that, too. I enjoyed it. Uh, Festival Express. Yes. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. That's about like that Canada tour with the band and Grateful Dead. On the train. Yeah, that's awesome. Great, great footage. Some of the best archival footage of some of those groups. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then more recently, Eight Days a Week, The Touring Years, about the Beatles uh, from Ron Howard. Fantastic. That's great. I have a couple uh, recommendations here, too. I guess I'm yeah, mentions. Um, in terms of just like overblown biopics that I love, uh, Oliver Stone's The Doors is a I movie know. that is like so campy. <laughs> I actually I quoted a bit of dialogue from this movie in the epigraph of my second book, Twilight of the Gods, just because I, I loved it. It was just this. It was like a total biopic scene, like where Ray Manzarek is saying like, you know, people are in the streets, man. They're looking for yeah. something that we need to be the <laughs> spokesman of our generation. And then Jim Morrison says, yeah, man, there should be orgies too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I, I rewatched the doors recently. It's so ridiculous, but I Does love it. it. Hold up. Well, it depends on what you're looking for. If you, if you uh, embrace the ridiculous overblown, like, you know, sort of campiness of it. I, I think it's great. Like I, I really enjoy it. And I like the doors too. Like they're another band, like the Eagles that people, Sure. Have a hate. Seems like you have a phase. Yeah, where you hate it. Where you love them for a while, then I think it's kind of fashionable to hate them. But Yeah, I mean, I loved The Doors in college. I was in a big Doors phase when that movie came out. So it was an event. Like, we went opening night, and I I thought it was, like, one of the best rock and roll movies I had ever seen. Right. Um, And just haven't seen it much since then. So I'm sort of afraid to. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't. 
Maybe you should just yeah. preserve that memory, but I think it's a yeah, lot of fun. Let it be there. <laughs> I enjoy it. Another another movie that I like that's a, a, more of like an unconventional rock movie, but I I think it's really great is Velvet Goldmine, the Todd Haynes yeah. movie from nineteen ninety eight. Oh hell yeah! Where they didn't have the rights to the David Bowie catalog, but like he still uh-huh. made it work. And like yeah. I think it's a great movie about like the idea of David Bowie and like a, so yeah. like, a like a fan's perspective, uh, like one fan's perspective on what he meant and um. You know, great performances by Ian McGregor plays like a Iggy Pop type person. I don't think he's Iggy Pop, but he's like so really based on him. Great movie. Um, a great movie from like the early 80s that I think has been overlooked a little bit over the years. Tender Mercies, Bruce mm. Beresford's movie. Robert Duvall won an Oscar for this movie for Best Actor. Amazing movie. Um, it's a movie that like, like if you've seen Crazy Heart, the Jeff Bridges yeah. movie, this is like the precursor to that. Like where totally. Robert Duvall is like a alcoholic country singer who's trying to remake his life. I like Crazy Heart. I think Tender Mercies is a, is a much better movie. It's really beautiful, really well done. Yeah, gentle movie. This is another movie like Robert Duvall like wrote his own songs for this movie and he sings them in the movie and it really kind of gives – like an authenticity to this, like he's kind of like a Waylon Jennings type yeah. person. Uh, but definitely seek that out. Wonderful movie. And the last one I'm going to recommend, this is a movie that like I avoided for a long time. Cause I thought I wouldn't like it. I thought I'd be annoyed by it, but I saw it recently and I really loved it. Okay. It's Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We just covered that on the show. It's a great, great movie. It's a great movie. I don't know why I thought I wouldn't like it, but it's a great movie and it's a great snapshot of like, sort of like, like a pop punk emo mm-hmm. indie rock world of like when that movie came out, which would have been, I think like the late aughts, like 2010 or so. I think that came yeah, out. Yeah. Something like that. Um, um, it's a very busy movie, like very, you know, lots of things happening at once, but um, mm-hmm. it feels like a, like a video game essentially. Um, but it's really well made, really funny and engaging. I thought Michael Sarah was great. You know, Jason Schwartzman is in it. Uh, Brie Larson plays this uh, like ex-girlfriend <laughs> who's yeah, like a rock star. <laughs> and like, she's really great in that role. Yeah. Uh, there's like so many people before they like really blew up were in that movie. Yeah. Really great cast. And like, actually I think like a really good soundtrack too, of like sort of like sound alike songs like done in yeah. that style uh so if you're like me and you were like oh i'm not gonna like that movie definitely see that movie I, although i'm sure I, I feel like most people love that movie it's a pretty beloved cult movie by the yeah, by now for sure um but yeah scott pilgrim versus the world so i feel like we could just keep listing movies forever <laughs> i keep thinking of new movies i want to talk about but i, should I know cap well it. Con- consider this part one then you know we'll have you back i think it'd be fun to talk more about movies we love and also, it might be fun to talk a little bit about some of the ones that have really gone wrong, because oh, yeah. there have been some bad, bad rock and roll movies about either great bands or ideas like the CBGB movie, where you're just like, oh, man, how could you fuck that up? Um, so maybe it'd be fun if you came back for a part two where we kind of talked about both uh, our favorites and some of the ones that they just really screwed up. That would be phenomenal, man. I, I would really enjoy that. Uh, all right, Steve. Well, it was great meeting you, my friend. I knew this was going to go this way and that we would probably go for like three hours if we had nothing else going on in our lives. But uh, thank you for giving me so much time. Uh, I have a lot of new great recommendations. I'm going to go read this Tom Petty uh, from Up Rocks, the best Tom Petty songs ranked uh, right after we hang up. Okay. And uh, go check out your books. Buy them. Uh, your favorite band is killing me about musical rivalries. Uh, Twilight of the Gods about sort of, you know, the, the heyday of classic rock. 
the Black Crows book, Hard to Handle. And uh, most recently, This Isn't Happening. If you love Radiohead and Kid A, can't wait to start this book. Um, go out and buy these books. And Great. listen to Rivals. Yes. <laughs> Charles, right, thank thanks, you so buddy. much. Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.